0: So, like all your people that you would give presents to were all book lovers and you would tend to give them chapters. I hope they're book lovers. I don't really. I don't give it that that much though. OTB AM Live, weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. Now, you're very welcome back. So, we are going to review the Sunday Papers here on Off the Ball. Very happy to say, here in studio, Gavin Cooney of the 42.ie. Gav, thanks for coming in. You're very welcome, Joe. And Mr. Tommy Conlon of the Sunday Independent, you are with us as well. Hello.
1: Good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon, Gavin.
0: Hey, Tommy. Gents, I'll just run us through the front pages very quickly then. Sunday Independent sports section. It's a picture of Katie Taylor with her gazillion belts. And it says, on top of the world, Katie in line for $1 million payday after seeing off latest Challenger. This was her unanimous points decision win last night. So all roads lead to Madison Square Garden in the springtime against Amanda Amanda Serrano and uh, $1 million payday. Beneath that, Jorginho's penalty saved Chelsea's blushes. Uh, Penalties all round yesterday for the big teams. Jorginho netting twice here. Mentions Andy Hampson. And just one of these things that you wouldn't really know unless it's mentioned. So with Kovacic out and Kante out, Jorginho is playing through a lot of pain at the moment. he has a back problem and Tom Stukel saying Jorginho sacrificed himself for many weeks actually. And I was aware that this moment would come when he suffers because he played Champions League, then he played the Euros with Italy all the qualifiers in the World Cup for Italy he had no pre-season started the Super Cup game so I knew we would arrive at this point of the season and he's uh, battling on through you sort of associated Jorginho with kind of dancing through games effortlessly but no he's in a lot of pain at the moment but still playing Sunday World then we have Katie Taylor Super Katie still top of the world Sean McGoldrick there in the top of the Sunday World and then beside that we have Raheem Sterling spot a joke Premier big hitters all laughing after dodgy Peno wins is the verdict of the Sunday World we have the mirror then Steve Jared back at Anfield Gerrards Mo Blow Mo Salah with the winner from the penalty spot a 1-0 win for Liverpool against Aston Villa. Uh, Stin Gerrard blasted the referee, Stuart well is the lead there in the Sunday Mirror. And Katie Taylor as well with her belts. Now I want Super Serrano, says Katie. So that fight just seemed to be pretty much nailed on for Madison Square Garden in the springtime. Katie's New York state of mind is the sun. Uh, Hamilton and Verstappen also get a mention here. Hamilton is petrified well. 20 laps in, things are going very well for Lewis Hamilton thus far over in Abu Dhabi. And then we have Vic in Heart Scare. Alarm as Red Devil star suffers. Chest pains on pitch. Victor Lindelof suffered. Uh, worrying Heart Scare yesterday, says Dan King. Thankfully all seems to be well though. Then uh, the Observer, they have uh, Max Power on their front page. Interestingly, you would think it might be Lewis Hamilton, but it's Max Power. Flying Dutchman grabs pole to set up. Too close to call. Desert decider with Hamilton is the Observer lead. Sunday Times, pictures of Raheem Sterling, Uh, for Man City scoring the penalty and then Mo Salah winning the penalty for Liverpool. And then right-hand side, maybe an interview we might touch on within, it's Shane Duffy talking to Paul Rowan. Lifestyle change lifted Duffy from rock bottom. So Duffy talking about the various lifestyle changes, which has helped him return to top form and beyond. And then Mail on Sunday, Max Power, Verstappen scorches into pole to leave rivals stunned. Again, 20 laps into the race, Hamilton going along very nicely in Abu Dhabi. And then Gerard uh, wave into the Anfield crowd. Much love, but no joy for Stevie G at Anfield. That is where we are. Gents, let's start with the Briny Frost, Robbie Dunn case, which has run throughout the week and certainly dominated in various quarters. David Walsh is writing about it in the Sunday Times. Tommy Collin, you're writing about it in the Sunday Independent. The chair of the BHA, Anne-Marie Phelps writing about it in the Mail on Sunday. So Gav, you can get the ball uh, rolling here on this one. We'll come to Tommy in a moment who has been writing about it. David Walsh as well. There is a common thread I would say in David and Tommy's piece, which is, mm. what does the future hold now for Briony Frost within the confines of the weighing room?
2: Yeah, I mean the story now is is what happens next and how racing reacts and I, I think Tommy might be slightly more pessimistic on Bryony's future in the sport with the end of his piece the whistleblower seldom gets to write a Hollywood ending, Frost will pay a big price too, it will be measured out in loneliness among other punishments. Now the, the sport itself are hopeful that that, that that fate won't befall Bryony Frost, the uh, Anne-Marie Phelps, who is the chair of the British Horse Racing Authority, has an op-ed in the mail on Sunday today. And I, I think this is the crucial piece that we're probably going to, a crucial line that we're probably going to tease out here. Um, she says, at the heart of this lies not what crude and unacceptable language use, was used, but how these words were used and how others reacted. And I think that's the that's the, those last three words are, are what's crucial here, how others reacted, because... Like, this should be a reckoning for the sport. Like I mean, Bryony's uh, um, ordeal within the weighing room was was horrifying. Um, like, in terms of what was said to her, we can't repeat it on radio, uh, but she was found to have been bullied. And um, I wouldn't be too optimistic on how the sport would change, I have to say, Joe. The um, Professional Jockeys Association came out with um, quite a strong statement, shall we say. I- I'll give them, I'll be generous in saying that they that they were a bit tone deaf on it. They came out. They, they seized on uh, on this word that was used about the atmosphere in the weighing room during the uh, during the hearings. That it was rancid, mm. and and they've rejected that by saying that uh, that it's not rancid at all. That like that would be that would be wrong to uh, to label all all jockeys like that. And even like even the language that's used. Like they use the phrase that uh, Brian Frost. She felt bullied that's again kind of putting, putting the emphasis on her rather than the environment that's around her. She, was, she felt bullied because she was bullied uh, so, it now, um, and so it, it now we're now looking at will the weighing room um, reckon with itself and, and that's the tenor of this David Walsh piece and, I, and as David Walsh says, silence can be consent so while well, the Professional Jockeys Association will reject the, the rancid claim uh, by saying well not all jockeys acted like Robbie Dunn and that's fair enough but did they did they tell, in Ruby Walsh's words, uh, sit down and shut up? And there wasn't enough of that. So as as David Walsh says, silence can be consent. And he, uh, he rounds it off. Uh, the final line of his
0: piece is powerful. It's the weighing room will now be judged on how it judges Frost. Yeah. David Walsh uh, says at another point, all the while that Dunn was picking on Frost, a lot of otherwise good people were observing in silence. Privately, they may have told Frost to ignore him, but they didn't challenge the wrongdoer and they didn't take her side. They left her on her own and then were upset when she lodged an official complaint. Towards the 11th hour, they tried to bring about some kind of resolution, but by then it was too late. Frost had passed the point of no return. And he also, and this is this speaks to the culture in the Wayne Room, Jockey said that if the problem between Frost and Dunn had been more serious, they would have intervened. Valets all claiming it was just bickering. Answers so uniformly similar, the witnesses might as well have been uh, prepped by a mafia lawyer, he says. And again, that's to the culture. On uh, your point about the Jockeys Association, because their statement, you're not the only one to describe it as tone deaf, Mm. I think, um, on the uh, announcement of the findings. So they talked about how Briny Frost had felt bullied, even though an independent panel let's let's said in the strongest possible terms, Has been she was bullied. So they have been scrambling and scrambling quite badly. Just listen here. This is uh, Paul Struthers. He's from the Professional Jockeys Association. He's their CEO. So he's been doing the rounds on Racing TV in the UK this morning mm. and trying I think, just about to get to an acceptable level of language. But I mean, just listen to this exchange. This is not, you couldn't say this is 10 out of 10, obviously, in terms of clarity. But this is um, the very latest from the Jockeys Association. This is Paul Struthers, their CEO on UK television this morning.
3: First of all, you you hit back with a very strong statement in the immediate aftermath of of Robbie Dunn's charges. And at the beginning of the third paragraph, you said, Briony felt bullied. Do you concede now that, Rhyne didn't just feel bullied, she was bullied. Yes, we we do accept the disciplinary panel's judgment on that and their decision that that she was. The challenge, Nick, and and these were really unique circumstances. It's the first time we've had a case like this that has had uh, involving bullying allegations. That pit, pitted one member against another and we, we have a, a, a job to support both and we had one member making very serious allegations, um, and we had another member maintaining their innocence of all bar one of them. So we were, we were trying to find the words that walk that tightrope, and we but, uh, and, and, and we understand why um, it has caused the issues that it's had, and that's why we do want to make clear that we we do accept the disciplinary panel's finding that Bryony was bullied, and the language used was 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 deeply and grossly inappropriate. So you, you're accepting, just for clarity, you're accepting that you were wrong on um, on Thursday to say Brianne felt bullied. You should have said Brianne was bullied. We we'll just clear yeah. that up. I think we we certainly accept that we could have phrased it differently. I think the as I say, we, there is that balance, Nick, between the two polar opposite positions of, of the individuals involved
0: in this case. Um, but yes. <laughs> but yes, right at the end. <laughs> three, so, day, three days of tough. But, and even then, they're walking a real tightrope in their own minds. That's Paul Struthers, the Professional Jockeys Association, speaking today. Tommy, you were writing about this as well. Vindicated Frost now faces cold sugar, wi- shoulder. Whistleblower has won huge battle, but now faces the wrath of her peers. Uh, You're right, she's currently basking in the warm glow of public opinion, but the reality is that amongst her peers in the weighing room, the reception will be a lot more wintry for the foreseeable future. She's won a huge battle. Dunn has to pay the price for his horrible conduct, but the whistleblower seldom gets to write a Hollywood ending. Frost will pay a big price too. It will be measured out in loneliness, among other punishments. Like Dunn, she too will have a sentence to serve, and it may last a lot longer than his so what are you basing that on Tommy why do you think she's due the cold shoulder now for the foreseeable
1: can you picture her Joe walking into uh, the weighing room today I don't know actually if she is racing today she was yesterday I think um, can you imagine even just the silence the kind of the, the that um, uh, moment we're familiar with uh, um, where someone uh, who has antagonised People walks into a room, and all heads turn to stare, and the babble of conversation just peters out to nothing. It's very easy to picture that happening with her, for starters. Um, and um, she's spoken herself about the loneliness, and uh, in in evidence to the uh, uh, BHA, British Horse Racing Authority's inquiry, she spoke about how she had been ostracised and isolated already um we've also seen the evidence of the professional jockeys association you've just played some uh, audio from uh, that chap paul's brother struthers the chief executive um and let's face it we we know we know enough uh, uh, generally how these things operate vis-a-vis whistleblowers in society as well as sport um when someone uh, to use the f- phrase that paul Kimmage made us familiar with pisses in the soup or spits in the soup, as he did all those years ago in Pro Cycling. Uh, no one, the 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 group, the um, tribe, doesn't like to have its flaws and its um, behaviours exposed to public light. And it would seem almost inevitable uh, that Bryony Frost will follow that same fairly grim sort of ritual. And um, in fact, there was a trainer who was quoted in The Telegraph on Friday, a trainer called Neil King, who said, um, Briony's had some very hard times and one has to feel for her that she may have some more hard times in the waiting room for being totally honest and standing up for herself. And so, uh, <clears throat> The whistleblowers, it, 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 it tends not to end just with being vindicated in a court of law where finally their allegations are accepted and proven. They have to go back to their community. They have to go back to the people that they have ex- exposed and embarrassed and shamed. And uh, they have to go back and face their tribe, their people. And uh, it's a horrible place to be. And... Um, the you know it, it 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 doesn't end with vindication the the attrition and and the hostility continues very often for many years until the person is some way forced out of that community for one reason or another so uh, i'd be pessimistic about uh, uh at least for the immediate future of how she she will be she ought to be taken in and embraced and and uh You know, warmly, just taken into the kind of uh, into uh, taken in, and but that I don't think that will happen, and um, I think I think it's going to be very tough for her.
0: Well, it will truly be a scandal if, in the coming years, she is ostracised to the point where she might leave the sport or. Form suffers. Louis Weston was the QC for the BHA who were taking the case on Frost's behalf. And he said over the course of the six day hearing, yeah. there is a Wayne room culture that allows one jockey to threaten another with serious injury or to call another. Uh, we are on the radio here and it's uh, well before the watershed. So I'll just say or, or to call another a blank, a blank or a blank. Uh, if yeah. that's the case, then. That culture is one that is sour, rancid and one, that we sh- and, and one that we say should be thrown out and discarded. Its time, if it ever had its time, has gone. So that was Louis Weston of the BHA. Now, what's uh, striking is that Brian Barker, QC, uh, of the independent panel who made the judgment, it was a three-person panel listen- in, listening to all the evidence and they talked at length about how they found Frost to be a very reliable witness and talked about the evidence. But um, in his uh, written judgment he said of the Room culture, he said, in reviewing the evidence given and their approach by jockeys of repute as well as the valets, because several jockeys came forward and testified and said, look, what they had seen was not necessarily outlandish. It was par for the course territory in some uh, circumstances. So he says, um, in terms of the evidence by jockeys of repute as well as by the valets who uh, probably find themselves in a difficult position, we have a real concern that what was referred to by Mr. Weston as the Wayne Room culture is deep rooted and coercive, and that in itself it's not conducive to the development of modern day racing. So that panel have shifted the conversation not just from you know to the Robbie Dunn situation, which is there for everybody to see, but to the wider Wayne Room culture. And they're pretty much saying, We haven't heard things here to suggest that Louis Weston is wrong when he calls it rancid. Now this has prompted sure. blowback <clears throat> from Jockey's everywhere, but could I just ask uh, Gavin, do you uh, think scales could fall from the eyes here, and there could be a realization amongst the Wayne room that my God, when you see it laid out like this and across the media all week, our self policing culture is not fit for purpose anymore. We are going to have to change Bryony welcome back. look, we probably didn't appreciate how serious it had got or how far over the line it had got, but you know we'll 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 watch our p s and Q's a bit more and and move into the twenty first century. Would you share? Tommy's pessimism that that's a remote possibility. Yeah, I would.
2: And now, look, I'm not a racing journalist. I don't really know much about the sport. I'm coming to this story by reading what everyone else has read in the newspaper. But the fact that it's taken the Professional Jockeys Association three days, excuse me, three days to clarify that Bryony was bullied rather than she felt bullied, would make me think that that is not a representative body ready to look inward and at themselves and at their own behaviour. And like David is David right. like, I mean, you can highlight this line in your newspaper over and over again in David Walsh's piece silence can be consent. Not everyone has to be acting like Robbie Dunn was deemed to have acted for this um, atmosphere to be hostile to Bryony Frost or any other female jockey. They merely have to be silent. And is- that is in itself permissive of the culture which has been exposed here. Bryony Frost has done her sport a great service. People will say that she shouldn't have lifted the veil, she shouldn't have spat in the suit, but um, I, I can think of many other sports people who have done as much for their sport in this, say, calendar year than Bryony Frost
0: has done for horse racing. Yeah. Tommy, sorry, you were trying to get in there. Yeah,
1: yeah sorry for jumping in, and no, Joe, no. there. It's just, that, it's just that the a lot of the jockeys past and present have, have, have jumped on that phrase. as Ran said. Uh, by by, uh, Weston the lawyer and I I actually purposely left it out of my article because first of all it is a barrister making making his case to the uh, judges and as barristers frequently do, there'll be a bit of grandstanding, a bit of hyperbole, exaggeration of the position. And it, also, it has also given the jockeys, I think, past and present, an ex- a, a, something to latch on to, that they can credibly latch on to. And it has a, 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 this sweeping generalisation about a rancid culture in the weighing room. They, can, they have latched on to that and resented that I think understandably because mm. it's such, it is such a sweeping generalisation, and it has enabled them slip off the hook of a, answering the question, "What did you do about
0: it?" Yeah, I think that's a very it's shrewd. The, ob, I think that's a very mm. shrewd observation. I think they have heard that and they've said, "Right, well, that's that's the line that's over the top, so that's the one we're going to focus on yes. and, and and highlight yes. the unfairness of that." Yeah, I think that's true.
1: Correct, and and I left it out of the uh, my article for that exactly for that reason. They're slipping off the hook of their own accountability by latching on to that particular phrase by that lawyer. And there's an element with the jockeys, past and present, of see no evil, hear no evil, in this too, you know, a lot of denial, the classic symptoms. We've seen this movie before. Uh, I think Paul Kimmage uh, was one of the first to kind of educate us on the whole, um, not not just on doping and cycling, but the processes by which whistleblowers are handled. In all walks of life, we've seen it many times in all sorts of institutions in Irish life. Kimmage was a pioneer in that way, really, in terms of education about how how community subcultures um, uh, hunker down and resort very easily to denial and paranoia. And um, we're seeing this classically playing out here as well, and the Professional Jockeys Association in particular, and to the extent that actually in the Racing Post on Friday, the editor of the Racing Post and his comment piece said that the leadership of the PGA should consider their position, given how they've dealt with this.
0: Yeah, well, they were out scrambling and this morning and trying to write that wrong, I think, clearly. Yeah,
1: yeah but um, the ma- the main thing you would love is that uh, you'd love to see happening is that Briony Frost is is actually welcomed into the way in, w- welcome the bosom of her sport because it's not just her sport it's her community it's her her tribe her people mm. and that they just you know t- take her back in and maybe say sorry and we could have done better and help us to do better and um, you know let's move forward together and let no one ever say a bad word or speak ill of her uh, or to her and, and, and throw their arms around her and help her through. I'm No doubt is a very distressing time for her too. Yeah.
0: Just a last point on all this. Ruby Walsh was on ITV yesterday and the rancid comment was put to him and he um, said, not rancid. That said though, Ruby Walsh said, you have a room full of competitors and rivals. They're not all friends, nor should they be, but they represent the image of the sport and they have to uphold that. There'll be rows, but at times somebody has to tell somebody else to sit down and shut up. That doesn't appear to have happened. That's what went wrong. You have to use words like, I'm sorry, that's part of any altercation. And in sport, that will always happen, but you have to go back and apologise. They're simple words. And then somebody has to reassure the person who was heckled not to worry about it. That's how the weigh-in room should work, but it stopped working, which is the problem. See, that's quite, I think it's a very interesting comment because for me, Gav, that in the way Walsh has painted the weighing room there, that's how the weighing room functioned for a long time. And I'd say functioned okay. Now, Mm. I'm not saying everything that happened there was perfect. And I'd say there were bumps along the road and probably behaviour which wouldn't look good laid out in the real world. And a a HR expert wouldn't say, well, geez, that was not the way Mm. to police things. But I'd say, you know, with a few bumps in the road, it's probably functioned okay in this way for a long time. And in this instance, Walsh is saying, geez, it really didn't function. But this instance may now prompt the end of mm. the functioning because it's failed so badly in this instance is mm. my reading of it.
2: I think Ruby Walsh distinguished himself with the co- with his public comments on this this week. Certainly compared to what you read from other jockeys, but like I'm not, I don't know much about a weighing room to be honest. No. But I would, I would question as to how hospitable an environment it has historically been. Because and I don't, I, this is not to impinge on Ruby at all, but he is a male. It is his male. Um, Outlook on these things, and it it would naturally be different for a woman. And I think that there's an there's a very good line in Tommy's piece that gives kind of more historical context to this story and to. The credit that Bryony e. Frost had done her sport, because uh, Tommy quotes Gay Kellaway, yeah. who was a trainer, is trainer now, but she was the first woman to write a winner at Royal Ascot. She did that in 1987. And she said that this is 40 years too late. This was what I had to suffer back in the day when I was riding. A lot of lady jockeys kept dumb about a lot of things. And she goes on to say, I'm delighted with the verdict. Thank God she had the courage to
0: speak up. Mm, yeah. Saw that comment as well. That jumped out. So, Tommy, where was that? Where was she speaking there? That sounded like somebody uh, was... Uh, on uh,
1: on uh, TV uh, after... Uh, uh, or she was at a, a race meeting on Thursday. Right. I don't know, was it on ITV or on At The races? which TV channel it was, but um, she was there Was I presume, one of her horses... Uh, and she was just asked. The the news had broke that afternoon about the verdict, and uh, she was asked for her comments. So, as I understand it, those were comments to, uh, in a television interview on right,
0: Thursday. Okay. okay, they are quite striking, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I thought so too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Fellas, we'll take a break. That's the Briony Frost Robbie Dun coverage. It's across the papers, as you might imagine. We will take a very short break. Lewis Hamilton. I'm sure you're all uh, curious to know. 34 laps in of 58. Lewis Hamilton is going along very nicely. He has a 5.2 second lead over Max Verstappen in second place. 34 laps of 58. We'll take a short break. News headlines. We're back with Tommy Conlon and Gavin Cooney to review the papers. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. You're very welcome back. Sunday Papers, Joe Malloy here. Gavin Cooney of the 42 and Tommy Conlon of the Sunday Independent are with us. We have talked about the Briony Frost, Robbie Dunn case at length there. So lots of other pieces in the paper which caught the eye. A very different interview was on page 8 and 9 of the Sunday Times. It's Lillian Charam, one of the great players, really one of the great players, a record 142 French Camps World Cup winner, always came across as deep-thinking, intelligent footballer, and his new book, White Thinking, is out. White Thinking is the name of the book, and he's spoken to Jonathan Northcroft, who points out that if you're hoping this book is going to give you the gossip... The behind-the-scenes gossip around the 1998 World Cup win. This is not the book for you. So, um, I mean, it's uh, well. It's, I mean, even the piece itself starts off in very interesting light, where uh, Lillian Chiram is uh, curating an exhibition at a museum in Paris in 2019. He co-curated it, and uh, one of the paintings was "Beating at Four Stakes in the Colonies," and Jonathan Northcroft. Right, this was a painting. Trump picked out, it's a shocking work depicting a naked black slave face down and staked to the ground being whipped while his white owner looks on. The owner's terrified infant daughter is comforted by her mother and a black maid while a black child of similar age is left in the dirt with a dog to witness the horrors of the beating. Now, Charam says that one of the organisers told him not to show it to children and this rather proved what he feels was the point of the painting, that the reality of the brutality and subjugation inflicted on black people is not something white people wholly want to face. So Charam writes in his book, the child in the painting, this is the white child who's upset at the beating happening, the child in the painting is not yet conditioned to the violence of the society in which they live. They want to get away. They're a long way from accepting it. In other words, they're not yet white. They're becoming white. And so that's how this piece jumps off and Charam talks at length to Jonathan Northcroft here, but various uh, aspects. He certainly celebrates what Marcus Rashford and other English players have done of late. Makes a very interesting point on that, for instance. Uh, England is ahead of France in terms of sports stars using their voice, and Taram says it's come down to cultural legacy. He said French col- 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 colonial- colonialism, excuse me, French colonialism. Uh, he says that had an assimilation policy of telling the colonized that they were French, and it's reflected in policies today. Whereas he says, in Britain, it's more acceptable for different identities to be recognised. In France, only the ancient identity of France is recognised, a white identity. So to speak up as a black player, black French player, about your experience as a black player is to almost be cut off from the national community. I congratulate Rashford Sterling, and the other English players. So Gav, Mm. not your usual. No, it's great. I have to say, I found it very, very interesting. Uh, I think, though, you quoted the key
2: words there, that, that the kid who's going to be shocked by this painting is not yet white, they're becoming white. And I think there's a, there's a James Bolden quote that I'm going to paraphrase slash slightly mangle that uh, the existence of the Negro is not a question for the black man, but it's a question for the white man because you created it. Uh, and that's effectively the point that Lillian Turam is making here. That He said, it's, you know, it's not... It's, he's certainly not the first person to make it, but it's an interesting football figure to make it is that, you know, racism is a social and political construct uh, rather than anything uh, inherent. And he says he wants to defend the only identity that counts which is human identity, so it's um it's interesting, it's just interesting to see a footballer like I mean we've we've all, in the last couple of years we've been fortunate that we we know that footballers will stand out stand up and speak out against discrimination for to have someone like Lily enterum uh, diagnose the causes of it in such in such detail and depth is is very very interesting and. It's also in, what I also find interesting about it is that he talks like uh, the change can only come from within. From speaking up is going to bring about change is is his line. He quotes uh, well. He references Kaepernick. He references Rashford, Sterling. He also praises the like of likes of, of Garrett Gareth Southgate and Jordan Henderson. He says when you're someone uh, when someone who is not a victim recognises the problems, it's harder to dismiss what white players need to do is to leave the pitch in the face of racist chanting or incidents. And I find that idea that it'll ultimately always come down on the person within the sport. There needs to be disobedience or civil disobedience is, is, the, is the general phrase within the sport because Churam was part of a of a French World Cup winning team in 1998, which was heralded as, you know, this is the this is a black white Arab um, team to unite the country, yeah, France. And then Jean-Marie Le Pen got into the, the runoffs only shortly after, yeah. and it's still a problem in France. Like they're they're tripping over each other uh, for far uh, right candidates in the upcoming elections. So I find I find that interesting as well. Like we we can you know we can construct grand media narratives about how things change, but it really hasn't, and it will only really change with. Um, with, with with people sacrificing something and changing from within. We can see it in one context with Bryony Frost. You can see it here with uh, Lillian Chiram. There's a good piece of it with Lewis Hamilton in, in the Sunday Indo that, that touches on a similar topic as well.
0: Tommy, as I bring you in, I'll also, I'll also mention the Lewis Hamilton piece. I know the F1 coverage caught your eye when we were talking earlier on WhatsApp so uh, making an impact on and off the track this is Lewis Hamilton has become a driving force for good Tony Evans in the Sunday Independent and the Independent over in the UK so he's making the point that uh, Hamilton as the years have gone by he has really grown a social conscience as a younger driver Hamilton sometimes gave the impression that the external world had little to do with him he was fixated on his own performance little else since then he's grown significantly as a person and is engaged in issues that resonate away from the track I suppose most recently He uh, pitched up in Saudi Arabia and called the homosexuality laws terrifying, wore a rainbow helmet. Uh, Evans calls this an antidote to sports washing. He also pointed out that, you know, they may have changed their laws on women driving, but lots of women still in jail for driving. And uh, Evans says, compare this to his teammate, Valtteri Bodas, who said, I can't wait to come back next year, as, uh, you know, the main thrust of his interview. And he said as well, that, you know, he acknowledged the only obligation of any sports people is to do their job well. They're not required to become role models. And he said, as soon as they stick their head above the parapet, critics queue up to expose any hint of hypocrisy. It takes a brave individual to put their head above the parapet, especially if they are black and even more so in an overwhelmingly white sport. So there's a bit of a thread there with Tram and Hamilton, Tommy. You
1: know, it's hard to get your head around. It was only reading Lewis Hamilton, that piece, and a very good piece by Tony Evans on it was Hamilton, and the absolute grotesque irony of Saudi Arabia hosting a, a, a car racing uh, competition in a country where women are banned from driving cars. They're re- they're recently or, or were, re- recently allowed, is the word? Yeah, recently allowed. So that means in practice, culturally, probably uh, there are many many women who. Can't drive, or won't drive, or can't drive because there will be still uh, cultural disapproval of it. Mm. Uh, 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 obviously, one doesn't change a culture overnight just by simply changing the laws. But when you think of the sheer bonkers, grotesque, ludicrous irony of 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 this country that literally banned women from driving cars, having a compet- uh, having a uh, the most. Prestigious uh, uh, car racing competition in the world and having a leg of it in their country. I mean, it's it's a sort of uh, it, it, it's almost performance levels of hypocrisy in in a way. Um, but uh, that's by the by. I suppose the Lillian Taraman very interesting. It comes across as a sophisticated sort of intellectual um, uh, student of the cause he is representing and, and not simply just protesting or that um uh, the fact that he's engaging in art and uh, intellectual uh, uh, st- uh sort of um studies of of the whole the whole complexity of it um and uh, of course it's, it's a reminder again we don't really know these we most of the people we watch in sport, we don't really know them because all we knew of Lillian Siram was this absolutely magnificent footballer for mm. France, and uh, and then there's this whole uh, other other side to him and this um, that's coming that's emerging and echoes echoes a little bit for me in him in, in how he's dealing with the issue in uh, a great player from another code and a previous generation and Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Um, who is an all-time great basketball player, but who himself has now become a sort of cultural critic, writer, documentary filmmaker, um, and a very, very impressive man in so many ways. And um, I I was getting the same echoes or resonances from that that interview Jonathan Northcroft did with Lillian Thuram as well. But, you know, we know that this is a kind of, this is a weekly conversation now: racism in sport, and, a part of me, like, in a part of me, kind of wonders, like, or thinks, maybe the more pessimistic part of me that um, it's almost taboo to say it, but that there'll always be racism. We, I'm no anthropologist, but humanity apparently we sorted ourselves into tribes from as soon as we could walk on two feet, and um, and we are it is so deeply encoded in us the need to belong to a tribe, a family. And uh, you'd wonder—is it just hardwired in, uh, hardwired into our evolutionary um, systems to see people from another tribe before, at least before we get to know them, as somehow a source of threat, a danger, a sort of menace to our survival? And that this, this, what what we see now in the 21st century is still a hangover from our most primitive selves, and. A part of me thinks uh, we've all the legislation and campaigning and and all of that is good and very important. And yet it just seems um, the racism gene uh, seems just uh, incorrigible, unstoppable, uh, just so profoundly embedded. uh, That to an extent, all of the campaign, you wonder sometimes is all the campaigning, what does it amount to in the end? You know does it maybe it does work maybe it, maybe there is a maybe there is a enlightenment somehow developing and evolving in in humanity but you you you, you know you wonder you know the jonathan norcroft mentions the england game against hungary and a party also thinks that with all the campaigning against racism does it incite and goad a certain type of person Uh, in in the guise of a football supporter or his tribe of football supporters to actually, um, uh, that they're almost goaded into doing the opposite by the sheer uh, weight of campaigning against racism and that there's some perverse incentive for them to actually then deny that. I don't know, I'm just kind of speculating here. It's it's very interesting.
0: I mean, there could absolutely be an anti-establishment aspect to it at times and no one's going to tell me how to behave. And I mean, w- mm. w- what you can't dispute on Tommy's point, Gav, is that progress feels very slow. Well, I mean, it, it would also be news to FIFA,
2: uh, because FIFA, as Churam's piece uh, reveals, disbanded their anti-racism task force in 2016, claiming <laughs> quote, its work was done. <laughs> uh, so I missed uh, I missed that press release from FIFA to, to say that they had ended racism right. and that all was well of the world. But yes, yeah, it's, it's an interesting... That's an interesting, you know, kind of counter-establishment, uh, and I think you can see that probably with the booing of, of the taking of the knee, like, and uh, uh, they... they and the uh, the reactionary line against it is often we don't want politics in our sport. This should be a this should be a politics-free zone. But like that's a fiction. Like I mean, it's a part of society, and those politics encroaches as a result. So I think that's a very very fair point. But I would like and I think um, obviously people have erected barriers between and walled each other off from each other for uh, for centuries. But sport is one of the best vehicles we have to uh, to knock down those barriers, and it's it's far from perfect, but it is as good a vehicle uh, for progress. I think than than most other things that we have. Mm. I don't think Tommy disagrees with that. It's just uh, a sense of where is the progress?
0: Mm.
2: Yeah, and like you can't. I mean, the rational answer to that is I'm not. I'm really not sure. Yeah. You know, you can. It's. I think there's progress in the fact that Marcus Rashford and Raheem Sterling and Gareth Southgate and Jordan Henderson and other people feel uh, feel empowered to speak out. I think that's definitely yeah. progress. Like uh, Lillian Tram says, we don't have that
0: in French football yet. So. Just progress there, but it's uh, it's slow and it's and it's painful. Mm. And I guess Charam is to- talking Tommy not just about sport; he's just talking about day to day life here, ultimately.
1: Yeah, he is, and um, I'd agree with Gavin I, 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 on the sports thing. Um, and and uh, not, I try to avoid being tribal about about our allegiances to the thing we love, but. Um, uh, I've written it before uh, uh, and uh, it, it may be arguable. I'm sure it is arguable. But I do think, I don't know if humankind has created a greater meritocracy than sport. That, that ultimately the, your your family connections or your cultural upbringing or your privileges in life, they won't make you run Two seconds faster than someone who came from terrible in poverty. Mm. The clock, the clock determines. Uh, the clock, the stats determine your your place in the hierarchy in sport Mm. and i love that about it it is one of the glories of it for me yeah that all that it is it is the ultimate meritocracy or as close to a meritocracy as humankind has has devised because it can be objectively and scientifically measured your ability and if you have the ability you will get through the system somewhere yes and and there is there is i i think that for me is one of the abiding glories of the sporting life and yet, I'm mindful then of uh, of Jesse Owens, famously in '36, uh, what he did. One could say against uh, one one man against Nazism and fascism, uh, uh, an absolute triumph of the of, of human integrity. Uh, and yet, returns back to America and treated scandalously. And Jackie Robinson in baseball, breaking the the uh, color barrier and all like that. And and that they return to civvy Street and um still treated like that. And Lillian Thuram wins the World Cup with France and Muhammad Ali and Colin Kaepernick and on and on it goes. And but I guess it's better than nothing. And and I love the fact that um sport allows the world to compete and to and the best to come through no matter what their background.
0: No, oh, it's a great point. I'm gonna shamelessly go from that very profound yeah. insight to Uh, Seamus Coleman did he underachieve I suppose is the blunt way of putting this is Paul Rowan in the Sunday Times on page 6 ahead of Crystal Palace against Everton. Coleman's preaching belies his lack of ambition lack of ambition I suppose maybe is the way to put it so uh, he starts off by saying there's something mildly irritating about the ad with Seamus Coleman and the Irish supermarket regarding healthy eating choices and making the right choices so uh, you know I suppose I could have spent more time messing around says Coleman but I didn't I made a better choice in the ad and Paul Rowan argues, had Coleman ever won anything in his 12-year career with Everton, it would be easier to excuse the Irish captain being a little preachy. Coleman's probably the most successful present Irish player when it comes to carving out a Premier League career, but that's not really saying a lot. He's an Everton legend, certainly. says his contribution to Ireland's been immense and talks about his unstinting, selfless uh, nature. But one still wonders about some of the decisions he has made since he became an established Premier League player talks about the interest at one time from Manchester United, rumours of interest even from Bayern Munich. A quote here from Coleman, not a recent quote, but just a quote from Coleman. There was interest from numerous clubs. I never looked uh, for a way out of Everton, he said a few years ago. Whatever went on between the clubs went on. I've always been happy at Everton. You can look back and people can say you need to push on with things and you need to get to the top. However, Everton took a chance by signing me from Sligo Rovers. Loyalty is not really a thing anymore in football, but I feel Everton have done a lot for me. And uh, Paul Rowan writes that Coleman at 33 reminds me of what Roy Keane said about Stephen Kenny last week. They're doing okay, Keane said, and if okay is fine for everybody else in Ireland, good luck to them. Along the line of top-level football, I thought winning was part of the package. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, so uh, he concludes by saying um, Coleman, he could have been called a genuine winner, the guy who had made the right choices if he had moved on and won silverware is the point. Sacrilege, Gavin um,
2: yeah. you very rarely read criticism of Seamus Coleman so I find this interesting because I've been thinking about it for quite a while Um, it probably doesn't uh, give give enough context to the fact that he he did break his leg in 2017 like wasn't it 2017 I think it was that game against Wales Um, when he was I think there were tentative links with Manchester United at that point granted they may have been they may have been uh, they may have been there prior to that um, has he showed a lack of ambition by uh, staying at Everton? I genuinely do think that Coleman is is genuinely old school, and I think he believes in in loyalty to Everton. He's a genuine old school pro, and I think he would actually put a lot of stock in that um, and being because and it is those old qualities that has made him. He's not Ireland's greatest ever player, or one of Ireland's. He's not in the top twenty of Ireland's greatest players, but he's legitimately one of our greatest captains. I think like he's conducted himself so well amid. Um, well, a circus around uh, around that team for so long for so many years has he showed a lack of ambition staying in Everton I'm not sure can I sit uh, can I sit roundly on get the off fence the fe- get off the fence <laughs> get off
0: the fence, um, off the fence. Um, oh, no I don't think I, up, I actually don't I don't think so, so to be so honest so why why I'm allowed to sit in the fence I'm going to play devil's advocate <laughs> and get in no trouble here why shouldn't Seamus Coleman have gone to Manchester United when he was 24, 25 and won the lot or gone elsewhere at that age and said, Everton, I'll be back in my mid-30s. I love you forever, but I need to win. I need to see just how far I can go in my career. I want to see what I can actually win. Mm. I want to play Champions League football. Mm. Why not do that?
2: Yeah, when you put it like that. like (laughs) Where was the loyalty to Sligo
0: Rovers? Why does the loyalty extend to Everton, not Sligo, I wonder?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I I genuinely think that he's just... He's, he I think there is a genuine level of loyalty there and maybe it is maybe it is absolutely a lack of ambition that is that is entirely fair I don't know like I mean were Manchester United we I mean, Manchester United also like they're not exactly the top of the game either you know it would have been David Moye's Manchester United onwards like that's not an enormous step up and beyond Everton like you can like Everton have always been the promise of that that next rung down so there's always only ever been a step up into the Champions League so mm. I would kind of query as to how many genuine opportunities there were to step up maybe that, maybe I'm not aware of some that he did turn down um, but I think yeah maybe, maybe it is a lack of ambition but uh, I think it's slightly I think it's a bit hard on Coleman
0: well, it, to be fair it's not to say he hasn't had a wonderful mm. career you played in the Premier League that long you've had a wonderful career you're arguably you're in the not even arguably you're in the top 1% of Irish sports people ever because mm. it's such a you know Tommy's talking about meritocracy this is the ultimate meritocracy Premier League football Tommy come on in here
1: a bit of a cranky piece from Paul Rowan I thought um, but he can he can tend to be uh, that way and uh, and I like him all the more for that um, it's no harm for someone to have a little poke at a sacred cow uh, and uh, not to say that Seamus is a sacred cow that implies that there's some level of hypocrisy or something going on there's not but he is universally considered one of the good guys Hmm. and there's a lot to be said for that and um, and an excellent I think an excellent really excellent footballer and and maybe one of Ireland maybe the best fullback Ireland have had in the last 40-50 years uh, I'd invite people with better memories than mine now to come in on that he's been absolutely brilliant for Ireland for so long he's exceptional pace and resilience, toughness, concentration caught guts he's, uh, passing, though he's, a really, he's, a, he's a top top quality footballer I'd have liked to have seen him go on to Man United uh, especially when Moyes, that seems to have been an opening there did his agent did, does he even have an agent um, and and sometimes if you I suppose if you have a a good agent uh, a, uh, <clears throat> or at least not a totally mercenary agent who might go who might who might say to a client get out of your comfort zone you can go to a higher level come on move up and um, Coleman strikes me as being a homely sort of fella mm. you know and he and and he likes I get the sense that he loves the sense of being part of a community mm. he's a community fella he loves that and he grew up in it in his Donegal is Killy Beggs, was it? Or yeah. Gavin or mm, what? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, that, that he. he it's, it's almost as
0: if these very admirable qualities held him back from pushing for that move.
1: Very unusual uh, in elite professional sport for a fella not to go, uh, not to, go to another level or, or to, to show that level of loyalty because they all know, Coleman included, how absolutely viciously ruthless and cold the business is and it makes them cold. I think Jerry Flannery said that did he to you during the week, or to someone and when he was at Arsenal that, that there's a coldness. And, you, and indeed over the years when you meet serious professional sportsmen that there is there is they have almost been rendered like a cold streak in them because they know how disposable they are. Mm. And 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 not just and Coleman knows all that, but also the other side of it too. I mean when he had a dip in farm, the Everton fans were the first to turn on him. You know, and that happens an awful lot. I mean, the talk about fans being loyal to their clubs for life and all like that, uh, there's a, a long dismal litany of examples of great servants of clubs who suffer a dip in form, coming back after an injury or are just simply gone a little bit too old, and next thing the fans are booing them. As if as if they have total amnesia mm. as to the service that particular player gave them. And Everton fans were guilty of that too a couple of years ago when Coleman was going through. So... I, I, you know, uh, maybe he should have moved on. Maybe he should have gone to United and played in Europe and and advertised his ability because he is he close enough to world class. I would have said.
0: Yeah, mm. Shane Duffy, by the way, is in the Sunday Times. As well, talking to Paul Rowan. Um, so I suppose the most striking thing about the interview is he talks about the Celtic period and he has talked about how he's got himself into the best shape of his life. I've got myself as strong as I can be to give myself the best chance. I'm the fittest I've been. I have changed my lifestyle. Diet, yes, and I've stayed off the pints. And then he does, I think, realising what he said, he suddenly says, that's not to say I wasn't living very well in the first place, but I've gone to a whole other level is what he says about his game at the moment in terms of uh, fitness. So he's enjoying life at Brighton and definitely wants Stephen Kenny to stay on. I've never enjoyed football more at international level, so it's about keeping going and keep working and he definitely thinks Stephen Kenny should get a new contract. So that's a brief synopsis of Shane Duffy talking to Paul Rowan in the Sunday Times. We'll take a short break. We've a couple more stories to get through, and we'll do that in just a moment with Gavin Cooney and Tommy Connolly. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. You're welcome back, Sunday Paper Review. It's Joe Malloy here, Gavin Cooney here, and Tommy Conlon of the Sunday Independent is with us as well. Tommy. We're watching an extraordinary final lap to the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Max Verstappen has overtaken Lewis Hamilton I think on the last lap. Yeah. Hamilton is now trying to have a go at him again. As things stand, I, I apologies I at the radio comment I've the commentary up here but this uh, this call, this calls for it. We're in lap 58 of 58. Max Verstappen has just overtaken Lewis Hamilton at the death. He's 1.3 seconds ahead and I would think uncatchable at this stage in the final lap I didn't see the overtaking he's on the he's on the uh, home straight we're seeing the checkered flag waved Max Verstappen's crossed the line in first place I'm struggling just oh, to yeah. fully confirm this because I can't believe what I'm seeing Max Verstappen confirmed winner of the 2021 Abu Dhabi Grand Prix he is the 2021 world champion this had looked like a non-event for the last 10-15 laps the safety car was certainly out in the last I don't know how many laps. Certainly the last five, ten minutes I've noticed the safety car has been out and they've been doing their thing. And whatever's happened at the death, Max Verstappen has overtaken Lewis Hamilton. He is the twenty twenty one world champion. We'll get a look at this again. Absolutely extraordinary. This is just kind of the fitting end to a roller coaster championship, Gav. That is absolutely ridiculous. Not to let too much light in upon Magic, listener, but during the break,
2: uh, I took a half a glance at this and said to Joe that, God, this is a bit of a damp squib, isn't it? <laughs> and then I realised that there had been some kind of safety car of some kind on the track and it had shrunk the uh, pack and then all of a sudden so Max Verstappen uh, swing around Lewis Hamilton and come home uh, almost, just about a second clear to win the championship, having overtaken Lewis Hamilton on the last lap of the last race. Of the season, I mean, there you go. It's a a fitting end to uh, to one of the most extraordinary years
0: uh, in that sport's history. Red Bull Uh, team going ballistic, and Toto is looking fairly ashen-faced at the moment. So Verstappen's doing his victory lap, and that's an incredible finish. So Max Verstappen is the world champion 2021. Back to the papers, Tommy Conlon you've uh, you've gone at one sacred cow let's keep the ball rolling here let's just you, you've, you've decried humanity and the inherent racism and uh, we've had Seamus Coleman talk and now anthems what could go wrong here so uh, God Save the Queen is not a song that inspires togetherness uh, sports should be built uh, for future this is um, I didn't see this documentary this went out on UTV on Tuesday a game of two halves so Mick Foley is writing about this and You know, we had uh, the likes of Gerry Armstrong from West Belfast and his friend Billy Hamilton from East, remembering their times together and how there were such such, uh, celebrations across the board when Northern Ireland did great things. I'm very proud to say I was part of a team that brought the community together, said Hamilton, even for just a while. And then there's a a fan, Graeme Kenny, devoted Northern Irish fan, uh, lived through the decades when Windsor Park was decorated in Union Jacks and... Billy Boys was a high point of every setlist. Now the supporters get more mileage from Sweet Caroline than anything. And Kenny unfurls a giant green and white flag. He says, you have to move with the times. But there was a limit. For many people, God Save the Queen, as Northern Ireland's anthem, is a curious remnant, writes McFoley from a time when the flags, the songs, symbolism of the football team was an abhorrence to half the community. For Kenny, changing flags was fine, no problem. Making the supporters' songbook less intimidating, no problem either. The anthem, though... Well, he says, that's something very special. The fans hold it dear to their heart. Changing an anthem, it's like taking a part of Northern Ireland away from us, from our identity. So it's absolutely a big no to changing the anthem. Arlene Foster must have been quoted in this documentary as well. She said that any discomfort about the use of God Save the Queen was overblown, something people latch onto as an issue because they want to make it an issue. And... Michael O'Neill, interviewed as well, former manager. I could see how other countries would display real patriotism and real togetherness during their anthem, real emotion. We never got that. And uh, O'Neill did what he could to try and improve the situation. Players who traditionally bowed their head during God Save the Queen were gently persuaded to raise them. But it's a thorny subject. Tommy, what struck you about this piece or about the issue?
1: Yeah. I suppose we should clarify Joe in case we haven't done already that the Kenny being referred to is not Stephen Kenny.
0: No, it's <laughs> it's, a it's, it's a fan, it's a fan, yeah. It's, it's uh a chap called Graeme Graham Kenney. Kenny. Graham Kenny. He I was the, he, he's the one who unfurled his, you know, the green and white flags and talked about yeah. how he was happy to make the song less less um divisive, but when it came to the the anthem for a fan like Graham Kenny absolutely not. So he was just one example of that.
1: Yeah. Um it's been, the all anthem has been a bugbear of mine. I mean, uh, the, I mean at GEA games, and I've, I, in recent years I've taken to not bothering standing up for the national anthem, uh, apart maybe from the All-Ireland finals. If I if I'm in Croke Park and I'm sitting down, I will stand up for the All-Ireland for the national anthem, the All-Ireland finals. But at this stage of my life, I've I've heard the national anthem far too many times, and uh, at every GAA dogfight, it's played. And it has been totally devalued I think and kind of cheapened into into abstraction almost where you don't even listen to it being played when it's been played and it's the thing of going through the motions like uh, up and down Ireland week in weekend in weekend out um, so uh, on uh, some some uh, scratchy version of it played on the tan and people stand together and do a bit of muttering and shuffling, and then the game starts, and and it's become a totally devalued, totally devalued ritual by the sheer overexposure of it. I think, and and that's 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 only at the GEA level. I mean, uh, more broadly, uh, personally, I uh, I don't I couldn't care less about flags or anthems myself, and um, I, I was heartened and I was heartened when. Uh, Egon O'Farrell, who McFoley quotes in his piece, the former GA president, talked about it. He just, I guess, he just put it out there, floated the idea that maybe we should ease back on the use of the tricolour and national anthem. And um, I'd be in agreement with that. In and,
0: um, in O'Farrell's case, just to clarify, yeah. his his argument was less about overuse and therefore cheapening, which is your point. He was arguing that it alienated uh, you know those yeah. who might see it as you know the trappings of nationalist Catholic old Ireland. Uh, your, yeah. your your point is slightly different, but ultimately amounts to the same yeah, to, to the it's, same it's, conclusion it's, it's that it's overdone. Uh, Gavin Cooney. Yeah. Mm. I, I I would add that
2: I also feel that the national anthem has been cheapened by the fact that it used to come on when the lights come up and the end of rural club nights uh, around the country yeah. back in our, back in our previous life. Uh, it's an yeah. interesting point. Like Agonafarrell makes that is it alienating? Like it's an interesting piece by Mick Foley because it begins by segueing in with "God Save the Queen" um, and if, makes point is effectively that um, if it alienates, it it should be changed. M- uh, Michael O'Neill managed to convince those. Uh, those Northern Ireland internationals who, d- who did not stand to attention for it to link arms with their teammates and to uh, at least not bow their heads and uh, there's an interesting uh, n- nice quote that uh, Mick digs up uh, from Nelson Mandela to let go is not to deny but to accept so it is um
0: it's a, it's a very interesting column. It's a, certainly an interesting talking point. What uh, about what about Tommy's point that it's been overused and therefore cheapened at every single GA match over the tunnel? I, I don't,
2: I, in fairness, I don't agree that it, it's been cheapened by overuse. I, I think the interesting, the debate to be had is whether it's alienating to people yeah. in the North particularly. I... And where are you on that debate then? I, If it is alienating to people, then I would get rid of it, because as we talked about earlier on, in terms of uh, sport being a meritocracy and the ability to unite, we talked about earlier on the show, we were talking about barriers being erected to people and sport being the best vehicle to knock them down. If it is alienating to people, I know people will say that this is, you know, the is part of our culture and it's, and it's intersected with that. My own personal opinion is if people have an issue with it and... Um, the sport and the GA can stand for in the in the twenty first century should stand for something else. I would, uh, I would actually, yeah, I would end it. Mm.
1: Tom, yeah, Joe, I, yes, Tommy. It I, I should be acknowledged, like people, um, this kind of what what I'm, what the likes of me is saying comes across. Really, I'm very conscious of like of sounding almost like the uh, stereotypical superior liberal media type, you know. And and um, yeah, you know, I mean, people's identity. It's very important to them, and my own is important to me, but um, and and uh, I, I guess I would be guilty of underestimating that mm. and maybe not respecting it enough. Um, and what that chap Graham Kenny says about uh, and um, you know, he's making his gestures like by uh unfurling the giant green and white flag, and you have to move with the times, he says, and then. Comes to the question of God Save the Queen, and it's, it's something very special the fans hold dear to their heart. Changing an anthem is like taking a part away from our identity, and and it goes back to that thing of feeling the need to belong to your tribe, to your people. And uh, and uh, I, I, I probably sounded condescending about that. I shouldn't be condescending because it is very important two people on that. But um, I guess we should acknowledge too. I that think, I think uh, what you've done there, I, th- I think, alien what, alien. I th- alien
0: I, alien. I, yeah, I think what you've done there on the Anthem front is, to be fair, uh, been very honest, which, and there's, you know, not enough honesty in public discourse. And then you've thought about it and said, well, I can see how other people won't like that point of view and acknowledge mm-hmm. that as well, which is kind of how we have to have discussions about these things now.
1: Well, I hope so, you know, and uh, one, I, I should be more conscious of that myself, seeing the other side as well. And, and I, I, um, I read a very good book a few years ago uh, by a guy, an English commentator called David Goodhart, I think, about that whole thing of in the kind of currently metropolitan or cosmopolitan sort of liberal sort of mindset that it does a disservice, to people who feel rooted to their communities, to where they're from, to being from somewhere, to their own people, to their tribe, and um, and that we speak down to those people too often. To like some of us, myself, I suppose in this case, vis-a-vis the flags and anthems, you know, and... Um, to respect that and not underestimate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because
0: I think on the anthem point, I do take your point. Look, we're also in the position, uh, quite often, if you're a, a jobbing journalist and you're at lots of games, it can become tiresome yeah. and repetitive. And now oh, here's the tannoy again. And it doesn't feel like a particularly uh, special occasion. And here's the anthem again. And now oh, do I get up? Do I not get up? But I think if you put yourself in the position of the supporters of a certain county or the players of a certain county, who may realistically have one if not two outings across an entire championship year, this is their one chance as the GAA community to come Mm. together and to enjoy the anthem and, and acknowledge the anthem and it's a sense of unity and and you know they might have won two matches a year I guess if you're the dubs yeah. and you know it's like here we go another day this is quarterfinal semi-final I'm not too sure play the anthem off we go uh, but for those pockets around the country where that's not the case I think it would be a massive wrench and they would you know they would struggle to understand God why are we not playing the anthem this is our only match in Ennis the, the entire year of course we're going to bloody play our anthem and 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 that's a part of what the GA is about. So I think on the overuse point, I would disagree with you. On the aspect to the extent to which it's alienating, I I think um, was O'Farrell was roundly shot down. I would presume when mm. he when he when he when he uh, flew that kite. But uh, if it if it is alienating, we can't very well talk about God Save the Queen and not talk about um, yeah. the anthem mm. if we're proposing to be thirty two counties and beyond. I think so, and I think that's what that Mick has done a very good job in this piece
2: of of bringing that in. The easy thing would have just been to write about God Save, God the, God Queen. save the Queen and, and, and are they terrible about, up there, the, yeah, yeah, and write about it from um, you, know, you know, the, the, more, the more national nationalist leaning or Republic of Ireland because, um, leaning footballers who play for Northern Ireland. But I think anyone, I think anyone reading that. that,
0: yeah, they say the they, nationalists down here reading that would be like, yeah, they should get rid. It is alienating. Get mm. rid of God Save the Queen, and then suddenly at the end to be sucker punched with, well, we do play. Ironie yeah. for the, the GAA counties up there. Yeah, you can see. Well, now I understand why God Save the Queen is maybe more difficult
2: for some to give up. Yeah, and mm. look, uh, the question, like Mick, doesn't answer the question, and I don't blame him for not even attempting to. Is what you replaced it with? I have God Save the Queen or Ironie. Oh, to joy, perhaps. I mean, I mean, maybe. I mean, Ireland's call maybe is not uh, <laughs> is not had the desired from effect. The maybe Joe has
0: Dolan canon. Yeah. Like, I I mean I don't know what you replace it with that's the difficult thing mm. where is Ireland's call now have we have we um, come to love it in its own mysterious way Tommy
1: a love might be a bit of heat, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: look if you're not standing for the anthem some weeks you're definitely not standing for <laughs> Ireland's call I presume
1: <laughs> what well, about something from the Joe Dolan canon of songs uh, is there anything there that might work on the uh National uh, level. Do you know what the uh, um, um, uh, 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 Phil Coulter's uh, masterpiece? uh, I mean, uh, we've just got used to it, haven't we?
0: Mm. Well, I think so, and I think increasingly, if you start to associate it with. Good famous Irish days, then there's a Pavlov's dog effect. Eventually, mm. you know. The problem
2: with the Trilli tune is that they ascribed it to the 1980s Ireland rugby team of yes. Willie Anderson and so the, which, which yeah. just wasn't
0: successful. Yeah. So maybe o- opening match of the 1987 <laughs> World Cup, they realised they didn't have an anthem, and so that was the only cassette tape they had. <laughs> <laughs> so short, maybe yeah, if they repurpose that for our more successful teams, maybe um, we'll. Uh, on mm, a serious note, though, though, that I, I mean, trying to come up with the replacement is every bit as difficult as me, you know the, the first intimation mm-hmm. that a replacement might be required. I mean how you come up with something that everybody thinks God that's that's the one that's a winner it's
2: near impossible <laughs> And but the problem is like no one will agree I mean it's no. uh, and regardless of like it's not it's not a comment on the musical quality of the song like I mean no one will agree because it's so contested so I don't really know where you go with that to mm. be honest but um, it's, a, it's a very good piece that's very worth reading because it's uh, it, it, it'll raise all those questions
0: even if it doesn't have the answers uh, we're not going to get to everything Naturally enough, which tends to be... Just to mention, we don't have to discuss this because I think this is just uh, something we all assume, but the graphic makes the the layout of the piece on agents is just uh, very, very good. Where, in effect, Nick Harris, who often does very good special reports for the mail and and comes at, at things a bit differently, he has just been looking at the fees to agents. In effect, FIFA have said, right, this has gone beyond a joke. We need to cap agents' fees. And so, on at least 10 occasions, 10 times in recent years... Uh, Football agents haven't paid at least 10 million for his his or her role in moving a player between one European club and another. And then there have been a whole bunch of 5 million commissions. And it's just the graphs which will catch the eye. So uh, the Paul Pogba move from Juventus to Manchester United back in August 2016, the transfer fee there was 90 million sterling. Uh, Mino Raiola got 41 million sterling he got 20 million from juventus he got 17 million from united he got 2 million from pogba so he got 40 million now under the new rules fifa are proposing that 40 million would be down to 8.9 million uh, gareth bale's move from spurs to real madrid agent there david manasia he got 13 million we have christian pulisic from dortmund to chelsea just 2 years ago the transfer fee was uh, 57 million his agent got 10 million uh, Philip Coutinho's agent got 10 million for the move to Barcelona and then to get Cristiano Ronaldo from Real Madrid to Juventus uh, Jorge Mendes got 10 million so FIFA are looking at this saying it is wild west territory we need to clean this and the issue right.
2: the issue is not necessarily depriving these men of their money. Um, they probably have enough. But the issue is that the money is going in their pockets and not being distributed to the clubs which produce these players. So uh, f- figures from 2019, the global spend on transfers that year was around £5.5 billion. Agents fees around that came to £550 million. Pounds, and the compensation to the clubs that actually produce these players was around £55 million. Pounds, so t- 10% of what the agents are getting.
0: Tommy, just a last story which really caught the eye. Dermot Crow, uh, dives yeah. deep on this and it's very very interesting so in short here yeah. uh, and again I mean this is tied up with identity and our territory and their territory and all that kind of stuff Ballygunner, who are doing great things at the moment at club level at senior level uh, Ballygunner in Waterford GAA club doing very well have great facilities by all accounts there's a local soccer club there Bohemians and Bohemians soccer players aged between four to ten trained once a week on Saturday mornings for an hour on the Ballygunner. Facilities. There's an indoor astro pitch, and technically, that's not allowed. So Crow Park, uh, obviously in 05, changed the rules and allowed Rule 42 and all that, and allowed uh, "quote unquote" foreign 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 sports. I don't think that's the technical term, but other sports, other sports into Crow Park. Uh, but the rule, the rule is very much still that when it comes to club facilities, thou shalt not pass. This is GAA only. So, Dermacrow writes here, the GA's rule on prohibiting the use of its, of its property for non-GAA activity allows for no exceptions to be made at club level. Now, enforcement of this rule is lax. Like so many of the great GA traditions, there are no under-the-counter payments, etc. Uh, the reality is, and I dare say if you're listening, your GA club may well be used for non ga activities. What seems to have happened here is that an anonymous complaint was made to Crow Park, and once Crow Park heard about it, then they had to act. And so, Bohemians Football Club were told, Your four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten year olds can't train here anymore. Bohemian Secretary Ian Barrett is uh, quoted to. He said, This is just something we do for the winter months. Ballygunner were quite happy to rent it out. It was money for them, it was great for us. He said, We have sympathy for Ballygunner. They had no option but to adhere to the rules. We are both victims of this rule. The biggest victims are the kids, is what he says. And uh, naturally enough, there's lots of people who, in the piece, would love to know who made the complaint to GA and what their motivation was to headquarters. Uh, the sad thing is someone saw fit to complain and deprive the kids to train, the chance to train indoors. These are the same kids that will be training outdoors with the hurling come March and April. And there's a reference as well to uh, that situation in Donegal in 2019 when there was a charity match for um, somebody in the community who was uh, very ill and it happened on a GA pitch and the club were banned for I think it was eight weeks from all activity. so um, this is not a, a unique case in in Ballygunner so Tommy thoughts on that the, the sense Dermot Crow has is this rule has to change very very soon and will change very very soon we're just waiting for it to change because the reality on the ground is that clubs up and down the country are renting out their facilities it seems
1: yeah and actually there's loads of good detail in Dermot's pieces and uh uh, um and yet and yet does 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 there actually questions like who was this who who is this mysterious scarlet pimpernel who 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 uh, reported Ballygunner to the G.E.A. and to Croke Park and intriguingly Dermot says here i think in the second or third paragraph when contacted Croke Park denied any knowledge uh, or having had any part in the sequence of events and so, Ballygunner is saying that their hands were tied by some uh, uh, local patriot who decided to report them <laughs> to uh, uh, to Croke Park, and yet and yet Croke Park seems to know nothing about it.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, there's questions there, like uh, who who was this person, and what exactly, how how compelled were Ballygunner? I mean, uh, to to take the decisions they did to uh, ban the Bohemians kids from from training on the pitch, like if, if the guy, if the complainant is unknown, and if Croke Park apparently says they know nothing about it, it's all kind of fallen into a bit of a Bermuda Triangle. Yes. And um, he quotes, uh, Dermot quotes, quotes uh, Andy Maloney here of the former Waterford Horror saying, I would love to know who who was the complainant? And, and um, if was their name attached to it? Or was it anonymous? And in my view, if it was done anonymously, I think it should be disregarded. Put your name to it, and then have the gumption to stand over it. And um, you'd wonder, like, how powerful was the objection that Ballygunner felt uh, compelled to back off and and not and not even remedy the situation, other than to just turn around and say to Bohemians, the Bohemian Soccer Club, oh, your boys, your your kids can't train here anymore." I I think Ballygunner have a few questions to answer about it. Yeah. Well,
0: we're out of time. We'll see uh, how that all continues to transpire over the coming weeks. Maybe there'll be some solution found. But we are out of time. Gavin Cooney from The 42, thanks so much for coming in. Cheers. And Tommy Conlon of The Sunday Independent. Appreciate it, Tommy. Thank you. Pleasure, Joel. Thank you.